Welcome, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I'm your host, Cass Clark, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we have a special guest, Kenzie. Hi, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Before we get started into all things sexy vampires, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, your podcast, and your love of horror? Sure, sure. So horror is something that's been in my DNA as long as I can remember. My mom showed me Night of the Living Dead way too young and I was hooked ever since and then followed by my father showing me John Carpenter's The Thing and that was it I was done I am one of the co-hosts of Beyond the Cabin in the Woods a good ghoul's guide to horror podcast where we just discuss horror films and how to survive and pull polls and just it's it's a lot of fun over the late summer we hit episode 100 and we've just been having a good time we love it I love all horror. I don't care if it's good, <laughs> bad, in between. I'll, I'll give it a shot. The gimmick at the beginning of Beyond the Cabin in the Woods was two experts and two rookies. And you were one of the experts, right? Yeah. So through 100 episodes, would you say your rookies are now also experts? Oh, they totally are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, one of our rookies, she will pop in with things and I'm just like, I feel like a proud parent, like <laughs> I started that one of the rookies because of scheduling, she would come over on Tuesdays and just kind of hang out and we chit chat. And that was tea for two Tuesday. Then that morphed into, she started wanting to get into horror films. And so I was like, okay, I know you, so I can cater what you like. And then it became terror for two Tuesday. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> oh, I love that nice. so much. This is very old. Well, are we all ready to talk sexy vampires? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Ryan, do you want to kick us off? Starting with sexy vampires in literature. I mean, just to note for anyone listening, I'm approaching it as vampires that seduce people yeah. more than like vampires that I personally find sexy. There are some <laughs> on this list I do, but uh, I'm focusing more on their modus operandi, like Nosferatu is not a sexy vampire. So sexy vampires in literature appear in poems and such starting in 1748, but they really take off with The Vampire written by Dr. John Polyodori in 1819. He was part of the same storytelling contest with Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and Mary Shelley that uh, where Mary came up with Frankenstein. The sexy vampire in The Vampire is based on Lord Byron, his Dr. Polidori's boss, who is notably in history, very sexy. 1871, we got another huge one with Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu, And it's a lesbian vampire novel where the vampire seduces the protagonist. That link between vampires and queerness stays basically forever. And then there's the big one, 1897, Bram Stoker published Dracula, where Dracula seduced both men and women in his attempt to take over the world, starting with London. A lot of people have read queer subtext or just queer text into Dracula, especially Dracula and Renfield's relationship as like an expression of dom and, and sub male romance and sexuality. Bram Stoker has long been believed by historians to be gay and if not gay, bisexual. He wrote a lot of love letters to Walt Whitman. He was a very, very close friend of Oscar Wilde. And although they didn't have any relationship that we know of, he was deeply moved and traumatized by the sodomy trials that happened with Oscar Wilde. And just as someone who might not know what that is, that was a time in history where it was so dangerous to express any kind of gay inclination at all that you could be sentenced to death and over 300 people were sentenced to death just for being gay, uh, which is just something that's good to put out there while we're talking about the subject because we're going to have a lot of fun, but a big part of vampires is creating text about something that couldn't be openly talked about and finding ways to do that in the genre. A lighter side note. Have you guys ever read Bitter Corella stuff from the Midnight Pals? <laughs> Bitter Corella is like a, a comedy horror writer who has this thing called the Midnight Pals. Bram Stoker is a recurring character. Basically like the... The gimmick is that there's like five horror writers that sit there and they talk and Corella makes fun of all of them. And the joke with Bram Stoker is that he's pretending he's not gay, but everybody knows. Oh, that's really uh, There's cute. two books. Yeah, Bitter Corella is great and I highly recommend the work they do. It's delicious. And now I'll leave you. Well, good night. Sexy vampires in movies, not a comprehensive list, but uh, a list. So I think the first one, for me at least, is Dracula in 1931. And then we get more sexy vampires with 
Dracula 1958, where Christopher Lee takes over for Bela Lugosi. And then vampires kind of explode when exploitation films become popular. There's a very popular subgenre of lesbian bisexual vampire stuff, at least popular to make. So like there was Daughters of Darkness in 1971, The Velvet Vampire, which is on Shudder right now in 1971, Vampiros Lesbos in 1971, Countess Dracula also 1971, Malpertius 1971. It's all kind of the same structure of movies. One woman vampire seduces men and women eating and killing them as she goes. Also, uh, in 1972 was Blackula, which is dope as hell. features Dracula turning the lead character into Blackula at the beginning of the movie as he tries to convince Dracula to end the transatlantic slave trade, created by William Gibson. I would say very sexy. Anne Rice publishes Interview with a Vampire in 1976, which we'll see a bunch more of in the 90s. And she published the books through like the mid-2000s. 1983, David Bowie gets to play the role of the vampire seductress in The Hunger. And then in the 80s, there's a lot of teenage heartthrob vampires, like Fright Night in 85, uh, Lost Boys in 87, Near Dark in 87. In the 90s, we get, for the first time, Buffy in 1992, which I've never seen Buffy. So y'all oh, can oh, yeah. tell me how sexy or unsexy Buffy's <laughs> vampires are. Well, it depends on the actor, okay? Mm-hmm. So it, it depends, like, the actors playing Angel and Spike, of course, they, woo. Same thing, the actresses playing Drusilla and uh, Darla, they're all just beautiful. Now, if it's just a random early kill, then no, they're not. But if there's a story revolving around them, they are pretty, pretty hot. Funny side note, Pedro Pascal played a vampire in uh, the uh, 1999 episode, The Freshman of Buffy, <laughs> which is Pedro Pascal. Come on. <laughs> 90s also, because you'd mentioned that we also yeah. get Robert Rodriguez showing up on the scene with his take on vampires, which is Salma Hayek in From Dusk Till Dawn, uh, Santanico pandemonium and then it's late 90s you're also gonna get into blade which everyone's wesley snipes steven dorf all of them i remember in blade three one of the vampires gets bit on the vagina so she gets fangs in her vagina and that came out when i was like a 13 year old boy and that kind of detail just sticks with teenage boys (laughs) no as 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 a woman in her 20s with blade three when ryan reynolds shows where he was bit yeah no no that (laughs) stayed with me that's in my memory warehouse i've got that filed away (laughs) (laughs) so i i understand ryan yeah blade was 98 and then 94 we got interviewed the vampire Starring Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, which is kind of a rarity in the history of horror. Because my understanding is those two were also, were already very famous. As someone that at that time when that came out was like drowning in Anne Rice and her vampires. (laughs) And that book series, like the casting of Cruz was such it was so bad no well no let me let me back up here the fans of the book series were so pissed at the casting of Cruz like he did not embody anything about Lestat and it took Anne Rice before the film coming out basically releasing a video and a statement saying hey I have seen his performance this is Lestat this is you know I think you guys are going to be pleasantly surprised because I was one of those I was like yeah I don't want Tom Cruise playing that's my Lestat I don't want him playing Mm -hmm. him and then Pitt was just coming off of everything so I mean it was yeah but also Antonio Banderas is Armand in oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) and and he's was also beautiful as well it's your coffin my love enjoy it most of us never get to know what it feels like Do you remember what people were upset about with Cruz being Lestat? Like, was it his stature? Some of it was his stature. Some of it was what he was known for, just being an action hero. And, you know, Lestat's the brat prince. Just that was the big one is just like he can't do it. And I, I honestly... He's probably my favorite part of that film. I thought he did a fantastic job. Now, I can't wait to see what AMC does with the series because I have such... A love. I that's what got me through high school was Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles books, not gonna lie. And I just I cannot wait. 
Interview got a sequel, like a very loose sequel in 2002 with Queen of the Dam starring Aaliyah. And then we get to the 2000s where uh, Vampires versus Werewolves seems to be like the, the big flavor. There's mm-hmm. Underworld in 2003, Twilight in 2005. Twilight, I don't like at all, but notably launched the careers of Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, who are both great. I haven't seen the movies. I've heard they're bad in the movies. But it is a testament to like, if you stand and do in front of the camera for eight hours a day and you just practice acting, even if you're not good yet, you'll eventually get good, especially if they make a four movie series around you. True Blood came in 2008 and The Vampire Diaries in 2009. And I think I'm missing something you mentioned earlier, Kenzie. Yeah. So we've got one, we've got Only Lovers Left Alive Mm. with Tilda Swinton and uh, Tom Hiddleston. Then we've got Vlad from Dracula Untold, which is Luke Evans. Uh, Kind of uh, not my bag, but I get it. You know, (laughs) we've got Clara that was played by Jim Atherton in Bianzatine. And then upcoming is going to be Michael Morbius, which is Jared Leto. Also, the U.S. and the U.K. version of Being Human. You've got Aiden, which John Mitchell played him in the U.K. And then Sam Witwer played him in the U.S. version, which... I know this is sacrilege to being human fans. I've only seen the U.S. version, but that's because of Whitworth and, you know, not made of stone. (laughs) 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 Then uh, there's also the Countess from American Horror Story Hotel, which is played by Lady Gaga, honestly. And Matthew Bomer is a vampire in that, as well as Angela Bassett. Like, Ryan Murphy just has beautiful people doing playing beautiful monsters so once again i'm signed up for that also zachary quinto as charlie manx from nos 4a2 nosferatu basically oh yeah i forgot all about manx yeah that definitely counts yeah yeah i think i filled in (laughs) thank you appreciate it you're welcome before we dive into our first breakout film which will be 1931 dracula i would love just to ask if either of you and i guess myself included do you remember the first vampire figure either you read or saw that you're like oh this is hot this is sexy (laughs) uh for me it was probably jerry dandridge from fright night like i was (laughs) i was young and impressionable when i saw that and i am my best friend's older cousin who was our babysitter sometimes rented it and would show it to us a lot because we were always quiet and i just i remember there's like there's something here i don't i don't have it all quite figured out yet I think it was like eight or nine, but there's something here. So yeah, he's probably, I would say he started it for me. What about you, Ryan? Do you remember Uh, your first sexy vampire? (laughs) I think it had to be Aaliyah, Queen of the Damned. I haven't actually seen it, but I'm seeing the previews on TV. Um, I do remember when Blade came out being like old enough to see a PG-13 movie, even if not 13. Mm. And just every preview said at the the beginning, like not rated yet. My parents are very intense about the ratings. Like if it was rated R, I was not going to see it till I was 20 years old. Mm. And I knew that even at like eight. And so I just kept like hoping like, please be PG-13. I remember that very clearly. Who was your uh, first sexy vampire? Uh, I think it was probably Spike from Buffy because as we've talked about before, I also wasn't allowed to watch like R-rated movies or scary movies. So if I did, I had to like hide it or do it in secret at someone else's house. Uh, so I could get away with watching bits of Buffy because it was on the WB network. And I remember it was, it was in the block uh, for a short time period after Seventh Heaven, which is a an entire experience that we have to talk about another day. <laughs> it's like, it's basically very, very fun to say the least. And then I'd be like, oh, I'm watching Seventh Heaven. And then I could like get away with watching Buffy because it would be right after my parents would just leave the room. <laughs> I like listening to both of you talk about your parents with the rules and what you could watch where mine were. Our family movie one year on vacation was Aliens, followed by the next year Predator. I was eight. My brother was three. (laughs) Just to give you context. So, so any, anyone that I talk to that they talk about, oh, well, we were really restrictive on what we could watch. I'm like, I have no concept of what that even is. (laughs) That's because it's like having parents that were uh, in college in the (laughs) seventies. That's a good point. (laughs) Do you know how excited I would have been if I was like eight or even like 12 and I saw aliens for the first time like it's it's still it's still like rocks when I saw it like in my 20s or whatever but like seeing it as a kid like that would have made my life like uh. no I can confirm that it it is still a film I'm obsessed with and if Mm -hmm. I am having a bad day I will put it on Cass did you have the experience because your viewing was restricted 
you didn't know what the hell anyone else on the playground was talking about. Like kids would be playing Terminator. You'd be like, who's Arnold? I don't know who that is. <laughs> I, I never thought about it before, but I, I, I guess. I was kind of really a quiet kid. So I would just probably just go along with it and not realize anything that was happening. Uh, and just think that someone made it up with their imagination. I am Dracula. Well, are we ready to dive into 1931's Dracula? Let's do it. Let's do it. Dracula, 1931. I'm going to give a very brief summary, and then I'll hit you all with some good questions, hopefully. Renfield, played by Dwight Fry, goes to Transylvania to rent Carfax Abbey in London to Count Dracula, who's played by Bela Lugosi. Dracula then travels on a ship that gets destroyed slash preyed upon by its vampire cargo. Renfield is enrolled into a psychiatric hospital run by Dr. Seward, played by Herbert Bunston, across from Carfax Alley. Renfield leads Dracula to Seward's daughter, Nina, played by Helen Chandler, and her boo, Jonathan Harker, played by David Manners. The group are assisted by Dr. Van Helsing, played by Edward Van Sloan, in Killing Dracula to Rescue Nina, who Dracula has been turning. It's directed by Todd Browning, who had been collaborating with Lon Chaney Sr. on silent horror films like The Unknown, which rocks. But Browning's career was derailed when he directed Freaks in 1932. Uh, Have you all seen that? Yeah. I feel like the sin that he committed was treating the freaks like people. And that's why he got thrown out of Hollywood. And I say sin with like large quotation marks around it. I would think so too, that because for lack of a better term, they're humanized. And especially during that time and seeing that on the screen, like it was revolutionary and that they're real people and it's not. That's exactly how I feel about Freaks as well. It's too bad because Browning was like an ex-circus performer and I've seen three or four of his movies and I've liked them all a lot. Um, So it's too bad that that ended his career functionally. But the movie Dracula, when we're talking about today, that he directed was written by Garrett Ford, adapted from a 1924 play by Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderston, who are in turn adapting Bram Stoker's 1897 novel. So how did you all like the film? It's, when it comes to Universal Monsters, it's not my favorite, but that's okay. But I don't think it would work if you don't have Lugosi. Like, in, anytime Lugosi is not on screen, it's like, okay, here we go. But I think Lugosi pulls so much power into that role yeah. and and just that's why it works and why we're talking about it today yeah almost 100 percent like hard agree on that one i think whenever he's not on stage i just catch my mind drifting a little bit and everything like bella Gossi had such an ability to be creepy and and i guess camp before it was even camp like playing into the humor of it which which makes sense because uh, as like a fun sidebar he grew up being like a, a traveling actor and would like do like Shakespearean plays like in the middle of the street as a kid. And that's like one of the ways he got his start to like being an actor. So I feel like he has such a stage presence, even in front of the camera, it feels like you're watching a play. So love him. I've always been a big fan, but the rest of the movie always kind of drags a little bit. Yeah, I feel similarly. I would say I like Dwight Fry's performance as well. And I love the Castle Dracula and the uh, Carfax Abbey sets, mm. as well as the... Uh, very zoomed in shots of hands coming out of coffins, which is creepy as hell even today. But yeah, I agree with y'all. And it feels like the the play DNA is still just too much in the movie. Mm. Kent, you already kind of hit this a little bit. Where would you rank it among the Universal Horror films? It's probably third for me. Creature from the Black Lagoon is always going to be my number one. Like I'm, I'm yeah. always team monster, which anyone that's around me for any amount of time knows this. So this is not a shock. But I give it number three. But you definitely... You needed it to kick off this universe. Yeah. What would you put number two, just out of curiosity? Oh, I'd say Bride of Frankenstein. It's just weird. And it's tragic. And I'm kind of, I kind of like it. Like, I'm, I'm kind of feeling it. Can I hit you with a piece of creature from the Black Lagoon trivia? Always. <laughs> um, so you know that scene where they find the arm, they just kind of rip it out of the wall? Yeah. So apparently that scene has made Creature from the Black Lagoon like very popular among archaeologists who watch it just to laugh at how bad the archaeology <laughs> Creature from the Black Lagoon is. <laughs> I just thought if you didn't know that, you should know I, that. I did not know that. And anytime that I can get a uh, Gilman trivia, I am here for it. Cass, where would you rank it among the Universal Horror films? Yeah, I guess I guess probably top five. Um, I don't really have a set list off the top of my head but 
there's some times where I really, really crave watching this film, mostly just for Bella Lugosi. It's a weird comedy horror soft spot for me. I don't know. I know it's not supposed to be at the time comedy. So that's probably a sign that like definitely in the top five instead of the top three. But yeah, I love it. I probably should have like, since I wrote this question two weeks ago, come up with an answer myself. but did not. I don't have a definite ranking either. I would say that I think it kind of kicks off the universe. And so it would be kind of impossible to overstate its or overestimate its influence, especially like when we think of Halloween now, we still think of a lot of the things. I don't know if cobwebs and big arches and broken down castles were a huge part of Halloween imagery before, but mm. they certainly are after. A fun fact for y'all, after Dracula, there was a different director for Frankenstein. I forget the name, but there's 20 minutes of test footage of Bela Lugosi as Frankenstein that was lost to time. So Bella Lugosi oh. apparently hated it too. It was very grumpy as they did it. The footage is gone, but there was at one point footage of Bella Lugosi as Frankenstein. But I'm sure you know about the Boris Karloff whole rivalry thing between the two. Yeah, a little bit. Tell us more though. Well, from the personal accounts they could find, he actually really, really wanted to be Frankenstein. He never wanted to just be Dracula. He wanted to expand and do like other acting roles. But because he had such a thick accent, the production went in the other direction and, and went with Boris Karloff instead. And it just fueled these ideas that like they were like rivals and they hate each other. There's been some reports that Boris Karloff was kind of a dick on set to Bella, um, especially because he was rising up the ranks in the acting world. And Bella Lugosi, because of being an immigrant, because of having a thick accent, not really having a ton of the English language under his belt before he crossed over to America and, and Hollywood, got like pushed aside a lot. And then obviously horror fans love to like shit talk. And so over the years, it's become a bigger and bigger mythos. The way that Bela Lugosi was treated as an actor from another country coming over and trying his best and just getting cast aside because he was different, which is very, very yeah. ironic. He's now one of the most iconic monster actors of all time. Well, his like I, you kind of touched on it, Ryan, about Halloween. His face is everywhere. When you Absolutely. think, when you think as a child, when you're thinking of Dracula, you're picturing Lugosi. That's the first image that you're, introduced to whether you've seen this film or not and you're right it it is super sad i do like that uh burton's ed wood also touches on that as well that rivalry and and just a little bit of the camp and everything but also it does capture some of that sadness that was in his life because wasn't he the first actor that basically came out that's like, yeah, I'm going to rehab, and they just shit on him? There was a nasty rumor. I'm getting this from The Monster Show by David J. Scal, the book, which is very good, in the 100 Years of Horror documentary. There were rumors that Bela Lugosi could not speak English and had to memorize all of his lines phonetically one syllable at a time. But like, if you watch a single interview with Bela Lugosi, you know that's not true. Yeah, he like, just has an accent. He has an accent. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he gets typecast after, which is really sad because I think he actually did have a lot to offer. Hmm. A more fun story from those sources. Bela Lugosi Jr. got interviewed in 100 Years of Horror and his dad would have like birthday parties for his son at the movie theater. And all of his friends would be terrified of his dad on screen. <laughs> and Bela Lugosi Jr. saying like, hey, his dad. He was not terrified of his own father. Another fun Dracula fact. The sets for Dracula were reused to film Spanish Dracula, which is supposed to be excellent. I haven't seen it. That's what I've heard too. I've, I've heard so many p- different people talk about the Spanish Dracula. The Criterion Channel actually had it for a little bit to watch. Oh, that's oh, cool. Yeah. Have y'all read Dracula by Bram Stoker? I tried. Um, <laughs> so, and I forgot to mention him and I'm kicking myself because after Bram Stoker's Dracula came out with Gary Oldman as Dracula, like I was obsessed, needless to yeah. say. Uh, so I tried to read it after that and 14 year old me just wasn't there yet, <laughs> yet to, <laughs> to, to read it. Cause I'm like, no, I need, I was expecting a different pace. I have read the play Dracula though, that you mentioned earlier. Oh yeah. Yeah. Actually I was in it. Oh, oh tell us more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, also my freshman year in high school, our community theater did a outdoor production of it we did it in October me and two other girls my age which is going to sound so weird now thinking about it because it's very weird so we were 14 15 we were the wives of Dracula the guy playing Dracula was my dad's age and actually went to school with my dad I'm like oh that's a little weird but we did have an interesting casting with 
Van Helsing and it was played by a woman. It was funny when I did end up watching Dracula for the first time, how similar it does follow to the play. Mm. And it's like, oh yeah, like, I was like, oh, I've seen this. I know which beat we're going to next. So yeah, I, so when you mentioned the play, that made me happy. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask both of you separate questions with some of the questions. I'll go with casters. How does the novel differ from the film? Better, worse? It's funny because you mentioned earlier how one of the things that stuck out to you about the uh, 1931 Dracula movie was how the monster is like shown re- like at the start of the movie. It's not like this slow reveal, you know, it's gothic literature. So the, yeah. the novel of Dracula, it takes a while for like some stuff to happen. It's not a fast read. It's very detailed. Like the tone of it and the, the writing gives me the warm fuzzies because I think it does so well hit that horror writing mark. But as far as things that happen, it's a, it's a slow build. <laughs> so I read it in high school and I actually... Like I loved it. I don't know if I'd love it still now. This is one of like the first books I really read. But I remember the opening. I really liked it actually with the Harker going to Dracula's castle. And I feel like it's like 50 or 100 pages of just like Jonathan Harker trying to escape. I really liked those pages. Yeah. I think when I first read it, if you go in thinking that it's going to be a book about Dracula, it is technically but it, like Dracula isn't really the main character. I feel like that's the thing that my like 13 year old brain couldn't get over. Like, where's the Dracula? <laughs> yeah, no, I hear that. I also think the, the movie changes too much stuff and it like cuts everything that's cool. Like the scene on the boat in the book is super cool. And it's like weeks of Dracula killing the sailors one by one. And so to have like Bela Lugosi step out into the, the cabin of the boat and then just the screen goes to black and then the, the ship is crashed kind of takes all the fun stuff out. <laughs> Kenzie, how do you feel like the, the movie differed from the play? Well, it's very condensed. And so yeah. you're basically, you're getting the stuff in the household and you're getting, mainly it's just set in the household after Jonathan Harker has come back and him mainly just trying to get Lucy. Like that's mainly the focus is just everything, because it is a play, so it's all centered at Lucy's home, trying to get Lucy. Mina's more a, not even really an afterthought, just like, I'm coming for you next. You know, yeah. like, a, like just you wait kind of thing. Renfield's there really for comic relief. And it's one of those, depending on the actor playing it, you can go like Jim Carrey, like over the top, or you can kind of be a little bit darker with it. Because like I said, it's a play, it's condensed, and Lucy is the obsession. Do you feel like, because you played the bride in the play, do you feel like the brides in the movie lived up to the your legacy? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, well, we were definitely, <laughs> I would say we were more aggressive. I'll, I'll just mm. put it that way. We were a little bit more aggressive. And it was funny with the casting. So one of the brides was a blonde, one was a redhead, and then I was the brunette. And I will never forget that because we did a midnight showing and the wind picks up, picked up just perfectly at the amphitheater that we were at. So as we're walking down these steps, our hair is blowing. We have like part of our cape also blowing in the wind. Like it was pretty epic. I have such a fond memory of that performance. We weren't as meek as one bride to another. <laughs> <laughs> According to the Ultimate Pop Culture Fan Wiki, there have been more than 200 adaptations of Dracula. Do y'all have a favorite? I do. And I have to go with Coppola's Dracula. To me, mm. that is perfect. Like, I love the music. I love the actors. When I think of Dracula, like, actual, like, first true introduction to Dracula, I saw that first before Lugosi. Even though, as we kind of mentioned, Lugosi's image was everywhere. Like, he is my Dracula. Oldman will, you know, and so that's why I'm kicking myself when, when I didn't mention him earlier. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> what about you, Cass? Now I'm just thinking about how amazing Coppola's Dracula is. So I'm going to definitely agree because I can't, I can't get out of my head how lush the sets and costumes were with that movie. It's- my favorite non-film Dracula, other than the book, have y'all read the Marvel 70s series, Tomb of Dracula? Mm-mm. no uh, so it's the first to introduce blade and it's just absolutely wild but it has my favorite dracula moment of all time in the comic book his daughter leads a campaign against him she hates him and she transforms him into a human and so dracula prince of darkness beats the shit out of some dude for his money and buys a cheeseburger 
<laughs> and eats a cheeseburger. And that's just like part of Marvel's canon that Dracula turned human, beat the shit out of some random dude, mugged a guy, and then bought a cheeseburger with the money. And it makes me infinitely happy to know that that's canon. I love um, it. Do y'all think Dracula should be a scarier, sexy figure? For me, I think he needs to be both. I think he has to walk that line. I think that scariness with the sexiness is like, oh, ooh. I think you need that. And I think that's what the most successful Dracula performances, that's why it works. Yeah, I think there's something, what is that that works and why are we attracted to that? Because I, I, there's like this element of danger that I think has to be. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah, like it's appealing to us because it's a bit taboo and scary, uh, like <laughs> many people's views of sex. <laughs> uh, not, not mine, <laughs> sex is cool, everyone. But um, I think that like that is a big part of it. And then also maybe just even on like a subconscious level, like plot wise, like you want to sort of buy in and believe that this monster is successfully is able to hunt and get people. So the sex makes it sell better, I think, on some level of just being like, oh yes, of course, this makes sense. <laughs> well, and I think also it's a trust mm-hmm. as well yeah. because you're you're having this, this creature, for lack of a better word, that is either kissing your neck or, or when it bites your neck, could rip your throat out. So there's that, and I, yeah. you, you hit on it with the danger. And I think that is it. It's that, oh, what is, what, what, what's going to happen? That's a really good point. I have another question for y'all around those same lines. Does the biting, is that sexual for the vampire? Like, is the kissing the neck sexual for the vampire? Or is this just like eating? In Dracula or for all vampires? Uh, For Dracula, let's say for Dracula. Um, But that's a great clarifying question. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh boy, that's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. I think for Dracula, it is the fastest way to feed. And for lack of a better, it's, it, it is a, it's the fast food route if for, on, yeah. on, on a person. So I don't think, I don't think for Dracula it is. Now, if we're saying just vampires in general, I think it depends on who's doing it. Yeah. I think Bella Gossi's Dracula, I, I feel like it's more out of necessity. And I always got, well, I was imagined like behind the curtains that like Bella's Dracula and the wives were like getting it on. And that they had like sexual mm. lives and also like thirst, but that's never explicitly stated. It's not a part of the lore, but that's just how I always imagined it when I watched it. So I, I think it's just, it may be satiation more than like sexual. Yeah. Yeah. This is my last question. So Dracula, the character is framed as an other in one of two ways, maybe both. In some readings, he's rep- uh, presented as a symbol of Eastern European immigrants, destroying the fabric of English society by corrupting its young women. In other readings, he's a symbol of queerness or homosexuality. Do you think there's one that's more accurate in this film? And is there one you prefer? I think with this film, it's talking about the Eastern European immigrants. I think that is because of it being Lugosi. And like we were talking about yeah. earlier, he does have an accent. He he is other, you know, and that is a, especially during that time, that is super scary. My preference personally, I like, as I mentioned, because I grew up with Anne Rice's vampires, I, I like the queerness. Like, yeah. I think that that's my preference is that it's one of those, I didn't catch it at the time because of my age, but going back and rereading, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's there. That's my take. The thing I always question with the immigrant reading is that Van Helsing is also an immigrant with an accent. But I guess Dutch is more acceptable than uh, Transylvanian or English people in 1897 slash Americans in 1931. He's the good immigrant, Ryan. Yeah. Remember, the, it's the good immigrant. <laughs> you both are right that the film is more about Eastern European immigration, xenophobia situation going on. But the actual portrayal of Dracula and Renfield to me, I read more into it as the seduction and queerness. Like, I feel like that stands out. And it's it's also one of those things where like, once you know about the background of like Bram Stoker's Dracula and that it's based on that, it's hard for me to take that out of the story. It's always just a part of the story to me. I wish I'd have known that before I'd watched this because then I would have been looking for it because now yeah. I want to go back and watch it and be just like, yeah, you know. <laughs> Bella makes those eyes a lot at Renfield. <laughs> just like, mm. <laughs> So our second film is Jacob's Wife, which came out in 2021, starring Scream Queen and beloved cult 
genre star Barbara Crampton. It's directed and co-written by Travis Stevens. It's technically a horror comedy film. It's definitely a more subtle comedy, just as a heads up. I watched it with my partner the other night, and I think I, I touted it more as like a bonkers comedy. And it, it does get a little bonkers and absurd, but it's, it's more of a subtle comedy, <laughs> which is good to know going in. The film is about this woman named Anne who feels overshadowed by her pretty controlling husband, Jacob. And then she meets this mysterious figure called the master. And power dynamics within the relationship start to get really tricky between Anne and Jacob. And she gains new thirst for not only life, but blood. So uh, this is the first time that Barbara Crampton actually starred as a lead vampire in her own film, despite always, oh, which I love. Yeah. So I love to hear what you thought about her take on becoming a vampire. Yeah, I think that Barbara Crampton is a national treasure, yeah. as did most horror fans. And I think she's great in this. I think her portrayal is great. I think she does a great job with being a little conflicted about eating people, but not too much so to make it not comedic. Mm. What do you think, Kenzie? I thought she was fantastic. And I totally echo Ryan's thought of her being a national treasure. Just watching her go through the meek to acceptance, Mm. the meek confusion to acceptance. I I loved all of it. And honestly, it was so much fun. (laughs) So here's a spoiler. One of the things I really like about the film is that Jacob and Anne are having a lot of relationship issues and dealing with Anne's new life of being a vampire and how that changes the power in their marriage, but they don't see divorce as a way to solve it. Uh, And it's something that also Barbara Crampton uh, spoke about when uh, CBR interviewed her. And she said, I really like them to not give up on their partner, to really be able to listen and move forward in bold and dynamic ways, but not feel like they need to leave their partner behind to do so, which I thought just thought was such like a lovely thing to say, because when I really stopped to think about it, In most of these kinds of films, like the answer would just be divorce or kill your husband. It wouldn't be like, this is tricky and we have to have a lot of more conversations. (laughs) So uh, I would love to hear about what we thought about the master, who's kind of this film's version of Dracula. It's portrayed by Bonnie Ahrens, who's the same actor that played the nun's nun. And like vampire films are just like a long tradition of being like sired or being called or seduced into vampirism. So I would love to know what we thought about the master and if it worked or didn't. And what about Aaron's performance really nailed that like mythic role? I loved Aaron's performance because well, I thought she was fantastic. And I was already with this film seeing the feminist take on it. Mm-hmm. I was already getting that vibe just, you know, with with Anne's change. So then for the longest time, they're so coy with what the master looks like, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And so then when Aaron shows up, you fully see her. I remember thinking, holy shit, she's a woman. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Like, I was not expecting that at all. And I mean, that's just from the makeup to how it was shot. And so it was just a delight. <laughs> Yeah, I had the same experience where I thought it was a a man. It's also, I think, Larry Fessenden's character. um, Larry Fessenden's also a national treasure, in my opinion. But he uh, repeatedly calls the vampire a he. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he kind of like sets that in our brain in a lot of ways. I think that Bonnie Aarons is great. I didn't realize she was also the nun. She's super creepy as the nun. Um, And I think she had some good range here. I think she also has the funniest moment in the film. I think the noise she makes when she gets stabbed, that like half scream. I've seen the movie twice now and it just fucking killed me both times. Which is, ah! It's just like not like a full-throated scream. It's like half. And it's so goofy. I don't even think she died. I think she turned into that rat that was in the... Mm. Um, and that scream was fake because there's no way that was like a real death knell. <laughs> What did we think of the film overall? Did we like it? Did we have some strong pushback to anything that happened in it? Well, my pushback is not even about the film. Mm-hmm. I just was not prepared because I hate rats. So oh, no. this film <laughs> is so much rats. Like one of, notes, <laughs> one of my notes, one of my notes, and because we always make the joke on Cabin is I saw it and I was like, damn it, Cass and Ryan is <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right. It's it was one of those I was just like, oh, okay, all right, rats. Yep. All right, we're good. We're good. So it's not even a real pushback. It is just Kinsey nonsense. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I thought it was fantastic. I when it comes to horror, I love when it can reinvent itself, it can surprise, and it does something different. And I think Jacob's wife turns 
vampire films in general kind of on its ear mm-hmm. and i'm here for it i agree with all of that except for the rat stuff <laughs> um, my proudest moment as a college professor was my student who likes me named one of their rats rat bradley um, <laughs> that's pretty they brought fantastic. it into class so i could meet rat bradley and it was phenomenal but uh i think it's part of this like uh wave of films starting with like the witch and a girl walks home alone at night where the horror in the horror movie is not really the the point it's like the symbolism and like mm. it has like great theme and it's like a, if you took out the vampire this would still be a very good relationship drama it's like that all worked really well for me and I, I love that type of movie i do feel like do y'all ever see after midnight oh no I think it's been a long time. I know of it, but it's it's been a minute. After Midnight is a, a Jeremy Gardner movie that I think does a very, they're a younger couple, but I think it covers very similar ground with the relationship dynamics and the monsters very well. But if you liked this, I think After Midnight does a similar thing, maybe a little better with the symbolism. Mm-hmm. Um but I think they're both very good. And- so I was really surprised by how bloody this film got just because it starts off pretty much like Ryan was saying, like a relationship drama. And we we know that the turning into a vampire for Anne is a symbolism of her like reawakening of her like power and her sexuality and her like lust for life. But it like turns in like a, in right about the middle and it's just like buckets of blood, like blood just spraying everywhere. So I want to know, how we felt about that do we think that the practical effects like pulled it off was it too much blood did you want more blood <laughs> i'm a sucker for practical effects i i love them and so when I, especially modern films when i see them implement them for whatever reason either they're old school or it's a budgetary thing I, i'm here for all of it and so i liked the blood i thought it was fun and i, I thought it worked it's just i think that also because it's a little over the top it also kind of sells that comedy camp factor with it mm. and you know ryan mentioned the scream <laughs> the, the the death scream so i think it, it's it's all part of the package mm-hmm. yeah i want to echo kenzie and just say yeah i thought the blood was it was too much but it was too much in a way that was very funny and i think that was the point yeah it's like someone had a blood hose and was just like and just like soaking everyone <laughs> i was like oh my god i will say the script is something that surprised me so normally when a character mentions something and it's we know it's going to be a callback later that frustrates the hell out of me because I'm like oh god okay because it just feels heavy-handed but this film managed to do a callback that I didn't see coming because I got distracted by all the drama that was happening early on when Anne and Jacob first start having relationship problems Jacob goes to see their friends and it's just like I think Anne's cheating on me I don't know what's going on and his friend basically says like well, I don't know, figure it out before this weekend because my like wife is making lasagna. And I was, <laughs> I was like, what a funny line. And then like right when things start getting really bloody, they come with their bottle of wine and it's just a bloodbath in the kitchen. And it's revealed that Anne is a vampire and they lose their shit and get brutally murdered. And I just was dying laughing because I totally forgot about Carol's lasagna. <laughs> yeah, so my last question about Jacob's wife. So both Barbara Crampton and the director, Travis Stevens, mentioned that they were entertaining the idea of maybe doing a miniseries with Jacob and Anne and what comes next for them, if that was greenlit, what do you want to see that potential miniseries explore next with Jacob and Anne's relationship? Or even Jacob and Anne as individuals too. I think the big one is going to be trust. Like uh, the the end scene kind of teases that with the kiss. So I think the big one is going to be them trusting each other and working through that, that they can have a healthy relationship and still have the communication and the trust that they need with each other. So I would like to see that from a drama perspective. Now on the other kind of camp perspective, I just, I want to see them on the run, just like, you know, (laughs) hitting these, you know, they kind of mentioned it, hitting these small towns where Mm -hmm. she can feed, you know, figuring out how to be a successful vampire. Mm. Maybe, you know, Kevorkian-esque, if you will, for, (laughs) since, I mean, since they do have concerns about that, both of them do. So I think that would be the way to go. What about you, Ryan? I I don't know if I want it. I think the the movie is great. And I think sometimes good things should, should end. But if they do have it, I want scenes with Jacob and Anne arguing over 
whether someone is eatable or not. I know there'll be like lots of debates about them. Like, is this person evil enough that we can eat them? And seeing their different definitions um, and the different things that they think make it acceptable to eat different people, um, I think would be very funny and very telling, revealing, especially because mm. I mean, the movie's about power dynamics. Now we've talked about that. Anne's going to have all the power in that discussion because she's the final decision maker. And for Jacob, that's going to be very uncomfortable because even at the very beginning of the movie, he's giving that sermon about like how a wife is basically a part of your body. Mm, yes. Um, yeah. So he's going to have to have a lot of growth to continue accepting that. I feel like that's honestly one of the things comedy wise that the film does so good about showing but showing that and that dynamic because every single time he pushes back with Anne and it's just like I make the decisions it's like she could destroy you like she could just lift a couch with one hand and just like rip yeah. you apart but you're so you're so delusional and you've been so delusionally thinking about how relationships work for so long that you're wanting to like battle your vampire wife like what <laughs> and it's just it's just funny because it's so absurd yeah do you have any any closing thoughts about Jacob's wife or how sexy Barbara Crampton's Anne is in this movie. Okay, Crampton slayed <laughs> in that red dress. Yes. Slayed. I like that this film is, it has a lot of social commentary going on with it, with women and power and relationships. Like, that's like one of my favorite sub genres of horror is social commentary horror. Like, give me that in my eyeballs right meow. And so the fact that it does this and unless you're really paying attention of what it's trying to do and you're just not focused on how beautiful she is in the camp, like, I like that. Like, so I think this film was very successful at that. Yeah. I have two stray thoughts and a question for y'all. Um, stray thought one, Barbara Crampton must have been in such good shape at the end of this film because you got to think they're doing multiple takes Mm-hmm. of all those exercise video scenes between <laughs> <laughs> that know. and her dancing with the lamps yeah yeah uh, my other straight thought they probably just do multiple takes of those blood hose scenes too and i'm just imagining like how long it took them to just <laughs> reset after one blood hose <laughs> or if they just had to do it in one. Oh, uh, 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 actually a third straight thought I love wrestling. And so seeing CM Punk as the deputy, dipshit deputy, was great. And my question for y'all, at the end, say there's no TV series, Jacob it has the stake in his hand and he's got his arm out, like stretched to, to strike. He gets a freeze frame. So it's almost like a Rocky II ending with the freeze frame. Is he going to try to make a move with that stake after the freeze frame unfreezes? I kind of took it that he was, where she really wasn't. Actually, I was not expecting the freeze frame. I was honestly expecting Jacob not to survive Jacob's wife. <laughs> so when so hearing that quote of, the, of what was so important that Crampton said, like I was just pleasantly surprised just now because I was not expecting him to survive. Yeah, I think you're both right that he is going to make a move. And I also think that she's not going to necessarily like drink to kill him. But I think that Anne's going to try to turn him. Because she's very, very, very focused about them being equals and treated as such. I think I could see her doing that. I would like her not to because I want her to have the power for longer. But I could see mm. that. Yeah. And the question I had was, why do we think the master meant when she was saying that if Anne drank her blood, the transformation would be complete. And now she'll just like always have to deal with her hunger because she didn't. Like that was the one piece of the script where I kept thinking about it. of just being like, why wouldn't you drink the blood? Is it just because you... Would you just like literally transform into what the master looks like? And that's, that's why you wouldn't do it. I don't know. That was one thing that I still am like rolling over my head of like, well, what does that mean exactly? I kind of took it as that is that if you drink the master's blood, the last visage of your humanity of like who you were as a human would be gone. So you would essentially start looking like the master and becoming a master yourself. Ah, That's kind of, that's how I read the line. Yeah, it made me think of vampire lore and how in vampire lore you have to drink the vampire's blood for your mm-hmm. transformation to be complete. I don't know if she would look like the master. I assume the master would look like that because the master is hundreds or thousands of years old. Mm. I feel like that's like what a, a decayed person who doesn't die would look like. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. That's yeah. what I thought. Another thing I admired about this movie was the way it handled vampire lore without a scene of someone explaining it. 
Mm. And just kind of trusting that after 200 Dracula adaptations, we kind of got the picture <laughs> as an audience. Um, I was very appreciative for that. Yeah, I like that as well, that it's it knew that its audience was smart. We didn't have any shots of Jacob, you know, running to the computer or the library to see, well, what is going on with my wife? What's a vampire? You know, like we had none of that. So uh, I agree with that, Ryan, too. Awesome. Before we close out this episode on sexy vampires, do you have any feelings about sexy vampires we need to get off our chests? There is a question you had in the notes that I would like to ask, if that's okay Okay. with you. Yeah, go for it. Why do we need vampires to talk about sex? Because we are in the United States and sex is such a taboo, all ages. Vampires are a safe way to discuss aspects of sexuality and that's why we need it i don't think i think it is a safe way for people to express some express their sexuality and it's a safe vessel yeah i 100% agree on that one i think yeah it's funny because i know earlier we made a side note of twilight and that's actually one of the things that i remember the most about twilight because when the book came out like stephanie meyer's books everyone in my grade read them and it was like everyone was always like going through a breakup or something. And it was just such a good, like, like a book candy because it'd be talking about the things that you couldn't really talk to adults about, you know, like where you were in your relationship, how far you went, like being attracted to what you're not supposed to be attracted to all these like heavy themes, but told in a really fun YA fantasy story. So I think that, I think it just gives an outlet to that. And I think that that's cool. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that since you asked the question? <laughs> I just wanted to add that the MPAA is insane that it exists. You can say the word fuck once in a PG-13 movie. Oh, yes. We've talked about this a little bit. <laughs> uh, if you see one female nipple, automatically are. Men can orgasm in a PG-13 movie as long as it's not like showing the dick and the cum. Women cannot. A woman's orgasm is automatically are, even if it's just her face. Mm. Um, so there's like all these like, weird things you could shoot people in pg-13 movies you'd rather see someone get shot to death than someone orgasm than someone orgasm you'd rather have a 13 year old see that that's so weird to me it's um, that's an excellent point it's terrifying yeah. it's terrifying that we need vampires to talk about this is like yeah you already said it but like a, a very big symptom of uh our inability to talk about sex in any productive ways in this society Cool. Well, thank you, Kenzie, for coming on to talk. This is delightful. (laughs) Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it so much. Big thanks to Kenzie Walla. If you want to learn more from their encyclopedic car knowledge, follow them at Twitter at Callista77. And definitely check out their podcast, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods which you can also find on Twitter at Beyond Cabin. Next month, tune back in as we dive deeper into the brutal lore, history, and film of vampires with our returning special guest, Yutaka from the Harar. Until then, be careful who you let inside. <laughs>